It's Wednesday, January 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A new study is revealing the high cost of having a baby in America. The average new mother with insurance will pay more than $4,500 for her labor and delivery. According to the authors of the study, the real reason for the increase seems to be the rise in high deductibles, with women paying a greater share of their childbirth expenses as a result. Olga Kazan, staff writer at The Atlantic, joins us for how, even if you have insurance, it is costing more to start a family. Next, a new kind of online service is aiming to help match people who need a co-parent. Someone that wants to have a child, but not necessarily the romance that comes with it, although feelings do sometimes develop. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how people are using technology to find platonic parenting partners without the love and marriage. Finally, the Democratic presidential primary is starting to take a dark turn. Candidates are campaigning in Iowa and starting to focus on issues like a possible conflict with Iran and wildfires in Australia impacting climate change. And all these issues are causing an indecisiveness in Iowa voters' minds as to who is best positioned to win in a general election. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. They looked at all the treatment that that woman receives in the year leading up to childbirth and then for three months afterward. So it is a wider window than just like getting the baby out. (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) you know, they were trying to take into account all the things that it takes for a woman to have that healthy delivery. Joining us now is Olga Kazan, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Olga. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about something interesting, the high cost of having a baby in America. Every couple years, we get these stories of like, oh, this is how much it's going to cost to raise a child until they're 17 or 18. For example, the average cost right now from some of the last numbers that we had of raising a kid to 17 is over $230,000. But we're going to actually talk about the high cost of actually having the baby, what it costs to go through labor and delivery. And even for a mother with insurance, they'll probably pay more than $4,500 for the whole process. Olga, tell us a little bit about this. So this is a recent study that came out in a journal called Health Affairs, and it essentially looked at women who gave birth in the U.S. who had health insurance through their jobs and who gave birth between 2008 and 2015, which is the most recent year that they had data for. And they essentially found that the cost that the woman would actually pay for her own delivery, even for a simple, regular delivery, went up from about $3,000 in 2008 to over $4,300 in 2015. And of course, the cost was higher for cesarean sections. And just for contrast, we're talking about the United States. For a woman giving birth in Finland, you'll pay a little less than $60. That's a huge, huge contrast right there. So in Canada, a lot of people were tweeting at me that they only paid for parking when they went to give birth. In England, of course, it's free because of the NHS. So in other countries, women pay very little to have a baby. But women in the U.S. are looking at about a $5,000 bill, even if they have insurance. And what exact costs were looked at for this study? Because it's not just showing up to the hospital and having the baby. They included other costs in the year prior, throughout the pregnancy, and even sometime after as well. They looked at all the things that might affect the outcome of the pregnancy. So they looked at all the treatment that that woman receives in the year leading up to 
childbirth and then for three months afterward. So it is a wider window than just like getting the baby out. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> y- you know, they were trying to take into account all the things that it takes for a woman to have that healthy delivery, have a healthy pregnancy, and that could affect her pregnancy outcome. Because these are women that they looked at that had insurance and were going through that yeah. route. The real reason that they found out was that it's just a big rise in high deductibles that women are paying, and this is what's shooting that up. So your deductible is that chunk of money that your insurance makes you pay before it kicks in any money. So a lot of Americans these days are on these high deductible plans with deductibles that are $5,000, $10,000. If you give birth, you might go through the whole process and not even hit that deductible. So you might be out $5,000. Your insurance hasn't kicked in anything yet, even though you've been paying all year. So that's really what they're seeing is a rise in those high deductibles that's causing women to actually have to pay more of their own delivery costs. They said that the percentage of women with deductibles rose from about 69% to about 87% during the seven-year period that they were looking at. I mean, that's a lot. 28% of insured workers are on plans that have deductibles of at least $2,000. And, you know, you hear a lot of Democratic candidates, a lot of people when they're talking about health care, they also always talk about the problem with deductibles as a key issue facing a lot of Americans in the healthcare industry. The kind of criticism of deductibles is that people knowing that they will have to pay all of this money, they might avoid getting health care. And that's especially risky when you're pregnant because you should be going to the doctor whenever you need to when you're pregnant. It's how you make sure that your delivery is healthy. So researchers and doctors are really worried that people are not getting all the health care they need because they don't want to pay their deductible. What are some of the other effects that researchers think are because of this? It could affect maternal mortality rates. So the U.S. has one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the developed world. So that's women dying in childbirth or shortly after childbirth. And that could be because they just can't afford to get back to the doctor because they might have one of these high deductibles or they might be underinsured in other ways. So they actually risk their own health in order to save money. And then the other thing is that women might just opt not to get pregnant. So $5,000 is more than the average American woman makes in a month. So if you don't have a month of your salary saved up, you might just decide, hey, you know, I don't know if I can afford to even like give birth to the baby right now. One last thing I wanted to ask, because there were uh, people that were saying, oh, maybe the study overestimated some of the costs because of the data that they look like uh, since they looked at so much of the time before the pregnancy. And they're saying, oh, there might be other costs incurred that aren't pregnancy related. What about that? So every study is going to have like limitations, right? But one thing to note is that some of those doctor's appointments that women go to when they're pregnant, they might not be coded as pregnancy related by their insurer. So like, let's say you have high glucose levels, you have gestational diabetes, that's a pregnancy related thing, but it might just be coded by your doctor as like, came in to check glucose levels, right? And so they wanted to capture those types of visits, which helps ensure a healthy pregnancy, but that might not be coded as pregnancy related. Olga Kazan, staff writer at The Atlantic, thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. They just haven't found the right partner, or maybe they've had other relationships or marriages that ended and they wish to have children. So they're seeking a way to do that with another person rather than going through a surrogate or a sperm donor and doing it alone. They want to find someone to share in the parenting responsibilities with. Joining us now is Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Julie. 
Thanks for having me. I love following your stuff because you always find what seems to be another crazy story revolving around family and tech. This one uh, has to do with some new kinds of online services that match people who want to have children, but not necessarily come with all the traditional stuff like marriage or even love. So we're talking about such sites as PollenTree.com or Moda Family. They're co-parenting sites, they call them. So they're matching people that want to maybe raise a child together and don't have to go through any of the other messy stuff. Julie, tell us a little bit about it. There are some websites like the ones you mentioned that pair together people who wish to enter into a co-parenting arrangement. They're not looking for love necessarily, although that sometimes comes, but they're going into it looking for a platonic partner with whom to raise a child. These might be women and men who have reached their mid to late 30s or 40s. They just haven't found the right partner, or maybe they've had other relationships or marriages that ended and they wish to have children. So they're seeking a way to do that with another person rather than going through a surrogate or a sperm donor and doing it alone, they want to find someone to share in the parenting responsibilities with. I mean, it's a weird approach. It's almost like going at it backwards. It's like you want to have an amicable divorce type of situation with somebody. It just seems like a tough sell, really. You know, a lot of people, obviously, you got to get along with a person to raise a child a lot of times. There's a lot of responsibility back and forth. There's a lot of communication. Obviously, that's why a lot of people think the traditional way you fall in love with somebody and you have a child, that's the way to go. But I mean, I guess for a lot of people, they're looking for these alternatives. Yeah. And I think for, you know, a lot of the people who are using this, they've exhausted other avenues. It's not like this is the first thing they think of. They're not doing this when they're 25 years old. You know, they may have been through dating they may have been married and just not either found the right match or not had a lasting relationship that resulted in children. So they come to a point in their lives where they really want to have a child and then the clock is ticking. So while it may seem backwards, it's just not the starting point for the people who are going into it. It's it's a place that they get to after having kind of exhausted the other traditional avenues yeah. of finding someone and starting a family. And the process of it all still seems even more difficult, maybe. I mean, you have to see if this person would be a fit. Obviously, it's kind of like a marriage in a way. You have to sort out all the legal and financial settings with regards to co-parent a child and raise a child. So this seems like a long process. How do these websites work to match people up? So they offer a subscription fee, which can either be monthly, but oftentimes longer, because like you said, it's a long and fairly complicated process, and it has a lot of gravity to it. It's not something that people just jump into with someone else. It does require being really honest with the other person, being in the same general area where they can cohabit, not maybe necessarily in the same household, but nearby so that they can raise the child together. They should share their finances and their medical history and all those things that you would expect any uh, traditional married couple to do before getting married, hopefully. So it can be a lengthy process. One of the websites offers us an annual subscription. Others have six-month subscriptions and other subscription periods that people can choose. And then they make a match perhaps on the website, then they take things offline, start meeting in person, start having discussions. And when romance enters the picture, it can make things really tricky. One man that I spoke to who I featured in this column actually met someone locally that shared his same parenting ideals with, but she developed romantic feelings for him. And he said he did not share those same feelings for her. So he had to cut it off before it got really complicated. But then he went on to meet another woman and they ended up falling in love and she's pregnant now. So romance can definitely enter the picture when you have two people who are 
this intimately involved, the idea of raising a child and, and talking in such intimate ways. You spoke to one of the founders of PollenTree.com, which is one of these sites. He said that about 60% of the co-parenting seekers are women. The male clientele is evenly split, usually between single gay men or heterosexual men. And there's sometimes there's same-sex couples that are looking to have either a mother or their father figure introduced in their children's life. You started off with a couple of people that you profiled in this piece. How has their uh, match been going? The woman is pregnant now. I think in this situation, they fell in love. So how has that been going? So far, so good for them. This all happened in pretty quick terms in a case like this. They met last April on Pollentry, started exchanging messages, and they actually met in person in June. And things went pretty quickly from there. They really hit it off. They fell in love with each other. They met each other's families. And now they're expecting a baby due in June. So they seem to be figuring things out with each other. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I have no illusions about Iran. I never have. The regime has long sponsored terrorism and threatened our interest. It continues to detain American citizens. They've ruthlessly killed hundreds of protesters. They should be held accountable for their actions. Joining us now is David Siders, national political correspondent for Politico. Thanks for joining us, David. Hey, good to be here. So the Iowa caucus is just about under a month away. It's going to be happening on February 3rd. And that's the first time the voters are going to go to hopefully start narrowing down who the nominee will be for the Democrats. But with all the current news that we've had going on with the situation that's going on in Iran, also the impeachment news is still looming over everything else that's happening in Washington. The Democratic race there has kind of taken a darker turn. And an interesting that's happening is that these two pressing issues are really making people in Iowa a lot more anxious about who they're voting for, uh, about who they think would be able to beat President Trump in the general election. And indecisiveness is growing because of it. David, tell us what's going on in Iowa right now. Maybe it's a combination of two forces. One is just the turn of the calendar. So, you know, Iowa caucus goers, as serious as they are about the caucus there, are also just like us. They get distracted by the holidays and wake up and all of a sudden they need to make a decision in 30 days. So that produces a little anxiety. And then the thing coloring all of that is that you have, like you said, the developments in Iran and impeachment. I mean, heck, there's a debate that's supposed to be at Drake what, next week? That might not even happen yeah. if there's an impeachment trial. And then I don't want to sell short the wildfires in Australia, too. It keeps coming up with voters out there. And I think this is a new thing we're seeing this election cycle as opposed to previous ones, which is that climate change may actually be getting its due, at least in voters' minds. Climate change is such a central part to a lot of the Democratic candidates' platform that, yeah, of course, the Australian wildfires are probably getting a lot of mentions and a lot of cause for concern it's going really crazy out there. I mean, it's even kind of bridged over into how the candidates are talking to people. I think Bernie Sanders was at an event talking about climate change. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm not telling you these things to get you nervous, but to get you depressed. <laughs> you know, he's he's trying to position it in a way of like these things are really serious issues and you have to be smart about the decisions you're making. If I remember correctly, there was laughter at that line. And then he might have continued something like, no, we need to lay it out there for people. 
the way he talks about climate change is not dissimilar from the way that your former governor, Jerry Brown, used to talk about right. climate change all the time in very apocalyptic terms. And I think that that's probably warranted given the subject matter. How has the situation with Iran been figuring into the voters in Iowa's minds? From your article, you wrote about a high school senior who's saying that he was worried about friends possibly having to be deployed to the Middle East. We've all seen the memes going around, how we're going to show up to you know Iran when World War III starts, things like that. But for a lot of young people that haven't really gone through some of this, there is concern there as well. And it's right to point out that Democrats have been terrified of Trump since he was elected, really. But I do think that there was something special with the Iran strike and that that has deepened concern about foreign affairs for Democrats. Heck, we haven't had a lot of foreign policy discussion in the primary until that happened. And that may accelerate that. You may see if the debate does go down next week, I would expect a heavy focus on the Middle East. So then, I mean, the question of how does it affect their views of the candidates, you can look at it a bunch of different ways. You know, is Biden advantaged because he has a lot of foreign policy experience? Maybe. Is he disadvantaged because of the 2002 vote that he took on Iraq? Maybe. What about Bernie Sanders? He had that lonely vote against the invasion there. Warren kind of got beat up. She had a statement that said something like that Soleimani was a bad actor, which was not enough, I think, for progressives. So the next day she came out with a more strident statement. It's been tough terrain for these people. And then Buttigieg, right, leaning into his experience in the military. What do the polls look like right now in Iowa? It still seems to be a three-way tie with Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Pete Buttigieg. You're right. The three of those were tied up at about 23% maybe, and then... I forget where Warren was, 16 or 17 percent? Yeah, I think 16 percent. Uh, so coming up. 16, okay. And then there's how's, how's Trump doing? Now, the, what you said about Iran still being an ongoing issue, I think, is very significant because it's not lost on Democrats that this may help the president politically. And the fact that it's ongoing means it's very unpredictable. And the polling suggests that Democrats still aren't convinced that they necessarily have a winner. And in the meantime, as I said, this caucus is coming up in less than a month now. By all accounts, the enthusiasm is high there, and they're expecting huge turnouts at the caucuses. But as we mentioned at the beginning, this kind of ramps up that indecisiveness now. It's now getting real time. And, uh, you know, who are they going to pick? And, and these big issues that are kind of looming right now, you know, we've been talking about this and the impeachment and the Australian wildfires. All this stuff really kind of ramps that up. You know, a lot of people are like, man, who do I pick? And with this three-way tie going on right there, the voters have to make their decisions pretty quickly now. Yeah, I think a lot of voters will be deciding walking into the caucus, which is not terribly unusual, especially in a bigger field. What's different this time is that the last cycle, the decision was a little more clearly defined. You had your Sanders voters and Clinton voters in January. It was like almost celebratory, I would say. This time you have a big fractured field. It is a little bit nervous. That being said, well, what, three weeks, four weeks? How quickly have news cycles gone this year, right? Yeah, right, exactly. I, I hate to say it. I mean, nothing tends to last that, more than a week. It's true. So it's possible that two weeks from now, I mean, the whole thing will change. David Siders, National Political Correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.